Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship program. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. The Family Office World takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm thrilled to have as a guest today, Avi Stein. Avi is one of the co-founders of Crescent Capital Management probably the fastest growing multifamily office in the country with assets in excess of $6.5 billion. With his Crescent co-founder, Avi has been involved with starting, investing in, and growing over 150 businesses and raising funds totaling over $8 billion. Before launching Crescent in 2017, Avi served as chief executive officer of Willis Stein and Partners, a private equity firm he co-founded in 1994, where he was responsible for managing the firm's investments in the education, recycling, telecommunications, energy, and consumer sectors. During that time, Avi also co-founded Lincoln Clean Energy, a developer, owner, and operator of utility-scale energy projects later acquired by I-squared Capital in 2016. Earlier in his career, from 1989 to 1994, Avi served as managing director for Continental Illinois Venture Corp. Previously, he was president of Cook Energy Corporation, an oil and gas exploration and production company, and served as the parent company's vice president of corporate planning and legal affairs. Avi began his career in 1980 as an attorney at Kirkland Ellis. Avi serves on the board of directors for Hilco Global, a Chicago-based financial services company that specializes in asset valuation, monetization, and advisory solutions. Deeply committed to giving back, Avi is an active philanthropist and civic leader. He is a member of the Board of Trustees, former treasurer and chairman of the investment committee of the Ravinia Festival. He is also a member of Harvard Law School Leadership Council. He also provides fundraising support and strategic counsel for BUILD, Broaden Urban Involvement in Leadership Development. It's a nonprofit organization that provides career and educational development for at-risk youth in Chicago's South and West Sides. He's also a director for the Western Golf Association and supports the Evans Scholars Foundation. Avi received his law degree from Harvard Law School and holds a BS in accounting from the University of Illinois. Um, Avi, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. I want to start, and this is how I typically do with the guests. There's so much understanding and misunderstanding about family offices. 
So before we dive into what the multifamily office is and what Crescent's doing, what is a family office? A family office can be so many different things, as you said, Ron. There is, that's probably why there's so much misunderstanding. But basically, it's an organization that takes what typically has been an entrepreneur or a, uh, someone who started and ran a business uh, who now has become a capitalpreneur. Uh, and is in the business of managing his or her money or the family's money. And typically, uh, there is some staff that's hired to do that, but not always. Uh, and it can range anywhere from someone doing ministerial tasks like moving money and preparing statements to having an entire team uh, of people doing private and public investing. Got it. So, how much money, in your opinion, and again, this is subjective, so there's no right answer, but in your opinion, how much money does somebody need to have a, a really effective single family office? Not the multi, but an effective single family office. How, much, how many assets do they need? In my view, it's several billion dollars, but that I'm, I need to explain that answer. I believe that a lot more of the alpha today is in private markets, not public markets. So if you want to be able to have an experienced team that can create institutional quality investment opportunities, it takes having several billion dollars under management in order to be able to support that team. Uh, if you are simply looking at uh, having a family office to do public investing, uh, ministerial uh, things, reporting, bill payment, and some other things of that nature, then I would say it's several hundred million dollars. But that doesn't give you the quality, even in the public markets, of someone like a Jack Ablin, who is our chief investment officer. To really have the right quality, I would say it's several billion dollars. Uh, if you want to do private investments, and at least several hundred million dollars uh, if you don't. Got it. Now, you have an extremely successful background in private equity. You've had a, ran a very successful company, Willis Stein, and I know your partner, Eric Becker, had a very successful company uh, in Sterling. Question I have is, you started this two years ago, and you could have just played golf and, you know, retired and <laughs> done what a lot of people do. Why, what caused you to start Crescent? What was the impetus to get you to, was it that there, were, there, were not, there was nothing out there that was that fit what you were looking for? What, what was the cause? Well, first of all, let me talk about the golf. So, you know, the great paradox of life is as you have more time, you have less skill. So uh, it, it, uh, <laughs> to me, the idea that I was going to play golf five or six days a week, while might have sounded appealing at one point in my life, uh, certainly does not sound as appealing given diminishing skills and <laughs> ever-changing body issues. So uh, that wasn't going to do it. Uh, I certainly uh, tried being semi-retired. I never fully retired, uh, but I really didn't like that. Uh, I like building things. I like creating things. Uh, Eric and I both had some interesting experiences, uh, uh, really coming from two different places. One was that when we both uh, slowed down, we started investing our own capital, our own family office capital, if you will, buying uh, existing companies. Uh, and, and doing real estate transactions. We found something very enlightening, which was that every time we did a transaction, every time we bought a company or did a you know, condo deconversion or a, a real estate development project, there was more co-invest capital available from friends, family, family offices, and others 
than we had room for in the deals. At the same time we were experiencing that, uh, we both had uh, associations with different wirehouses and uh, different uh, registered investment advisors. And we looked around at the landscape and we couldn't find the combination of things that we wanted. And that was pretty simple. What we wanted was an unparalleled investment infrastructure focusing on macro trends and efficient beta. Nobody was doing that as well as we thought that should be done. Secondly, we wanted something that was deep family office services that you could buy on an a la carte basis. So that if you needed bill payment, tax preparation, uh, uh, estate planning, estate and trust advice, trust company type services, you could buy that. If you wanted to have where you should start be the driver, which is corporate governance, family governance, uh, family education, and the interplay of all those things, we wanted to find that and have that. Nobody put those two things together in a very good package. And then when you add the third thing, and probably the most important leg to the stool, which was uh, access to institutional quality investment vehicles on the private side, private equity, private real estate, private equity secondaries, credit, uh, and now qualified opportunity zone fund, which came in later, no one had that combination of factors. So we uh, hired a research firm and we began looking at the market and began looking at how we might build something of this nature uh, and Crescent is what came out of that experience. So you saw wirehouses and you saw RAAs and you liked aspects of it, but you didn't like everything, that it didn't encompass everything you were looking to do, which led you to the multifamily office. How, you know, again, a lot of people aren't that familiar because it's my world and your world with multifamily offices. Can you elaborate a little bit on what does a multifamily office do? And then secondly, how is Crescent, because you guys have grown, I believe, faster than anyone in the country, how is Crescent different than other multifamily offices? Sure. So let me take that in a few pieces. Uh, the first piece, I think, is understanding the difference between the wirehouses and the RIAs and where the opportunities lie. So from the wirehouse perspective, you know, the problem is what you really have is a bunch of independent small businesses uh, underneath uh, a marketing name like, you know, Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or one of those places. But each of those independent businesses views themselves as an independent business. Uh, and there is, other than compliance type controls, very little sameness about what you get from one Morgan Stanley team to another or one Goldman Sachs team to the other. And very little uh, ability for those entities to be fully on the same side as the f of the fence as the client because uh, they're being pushed to sell more of the structured vehicles that exist at a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman Sachs or a bank. And in fact, uh, when you look at where a lot of these entities make money, they make money on cash deposits, they make money on loans, they're not really making that much money on their wealth management infrastructure, and it's really not a, an integrated whole. So uh, we saw that as very problematic uh, and is not very well aligned. You look at the RIA, or Registered Investment Advisor Universe, it's the opposite. What you have is a very fully aligned universe with clients. People are largely two true fiduciaries, and they are trying to do everything they can in their client's best interest. The problem is that most of them started as practices, so that a couple guys left either another RIA or left uh, a wirehouse or a bank, uh, 
and they could only afford the infrastructure that they could afford that the revenues from those few clients gave them. So that they never really invested in technology. They never really invested in infrastructure. They didn't invest in uh, private uh, uh, markets uh, infrastructure. They didn't invest in public markets infrastructure. They didn't invest or, or can't invest in family office services and things like that. Okay, so before, before we go into the MFOs, which is what I want you to talk about, is the, the RIA model then, in your opinion, is a superior model to the wirehouse. Is that fair? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, the RIA model is fully aligned and generally puts the client first. The wirehouse is, is def definitely the opposite of that. Got it. So superior from that perspective. Okay. The wirehouse does, um, because of its you know, incredible profitability, have a little bit more to offer in terms of private investment vehicles um, and a little bit more to offer uh, in terms of depth of infrastructure. The only problem is that it's not aligned. Uh, so the RIAs, just let me finish the thought there, uh, very fragmented, uh, 5,800 RIAs, 2,400 above $100 million, 700 above a billion dollars. So not much uh, in the way of strong brands with strong infrastructure. Now, most of the RIAs also uh, are in the mass affluent uh, and high net worth segment, and not that many of them are in the ultra high net worth segment. Well, before you go, before you go on, what is what is mass affluent? So, ultra high net worth segment is thirty million and above, as we define okay. it, and as most of the people who report on it define it. Uh, mass affluent is 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 pretty much anything half a million dollars uh, and above, and high net worth. You know that that definition varies anywhere from a couple million to five million to 10 million. Our view is that we want to be able to create, and we're going to get to your question about MFOs, a fully integrated MFO experience for anybody with $10 million of net worth or above. So what does that mean? It means that we want to be able to provide our clients not just with investment advice, which spans public and private investment vehicles, and we can talk about those in just a minute, but we also want to be able to provide them with credit help. We want to be able to provide them with a full balance sheet. We want to be able to provide them with a thoughtful approach to estate planning. We want to be able to pr provide them with basic family governance and family meeting and family education type technology. All of that exists in a multifamily office environment. So in our view, a multifamily office is a vehicle that can do everything for its clients, uh, including, for example, uh, uh, you know, let's say a client has an aging parent and needs to know how they deal with healthcare insurance for home healthcare, how they deal with finding the best home healthcare consultants, or let's say uh, somebody has a terrible disease. How do they get to the best person to deal with that disease? It encompasses tax preparation, bill payment, established uh, uh, estate and trust planning, uh, trust company to the extent that that's needed. And like we say, uh, we're not one bank, we're every bank. So we're on the client side, providing them with the best credit advice and credit availability that they can get. Got it. And then, so it's very holistic. Do you see a lot of, you know, what I see is a lot of people will sell their companies, let's just say they sell it for half a billion dollars. They say, okay, I'm gonna set up a family office. Do you see a lot of these single family offices set up where you're kind of scratching your head and saying, look, this is really not the right, you really should be in a multifamily office? I do. 
I think that there are a number of single family offices out there that have, let's call it $100 million to a $1 billion. Uh, and they're, uh, they have people that are managing their family office. And typically it's someone with whom they had a relationship on some basis previously. Uh, and that person has a skill set. That skill set may be picking stocks, that skill set may be picking debt uh, instruments, uh, credit. Uh, that skill set may be something completely different, but they, you know, they have a trust factor and believe that they have overall management skills and can pick the right outside managers. But they never have all of it. Uh, so what they end up doing uh, is having a very disjointed approach to managing everything. Whereas in a multifamily office, they get the entire picture put together, completely reported upon in one place looking at various exposures and various market tilts that need to happen. And they get, uh, in our case, uh, you know, the highest institutional quality access to private investment vehicles. So in with Crescent, I know you started, I'm guessing, roughly two years ago at you know, zero. Um, how much do you manage now and where do you exceed, expect to be in, let's just say, five years? We manage currently uh, $6.4 billion. Uh, we've grown from zero to 6.4 in uh, a little less than two years. Uh, we uh, have uh, a number of acquisitions uh, that we're in. By the way, of that growth, $5.4 billion of that is organic. In other words, it's, it's uh, advisors uh, that we've brought in uh, who none of them were from wirehouses. Uh, it's uh, our own relationships. It's Jack Ablin, our, our chief investment officer's uh, relationships and the relationships of our advisory board and others. Um, so that's all been organic, uh, except for a rock, roughly a billion dollars that we've purchased uh, through two acquisitions. We have a number of other acquisitions in the queue, uh, other advisors that are joining us. Uh, I think it will be uh, above $10 billion by the end of first quarter of 2020. And our, our goal is to be uh, above $20 billion uh, into 2022. Uh, and I think long term, we would like to be a $50 billion or more uh, asset manager. Well, I uh, knowing you, I would not bet against that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So next, next question, next question I have, you know, you mentioned earlier about an opportunity zone. And at these family office conferences that I speak at, which are, you know, I speak at a lot of these, Everyone's talking about opportunity zones, but the majority of the people who are doing these opportunity zones, quite frankly, just aren't qualified to do them. So can you take a minute and basically from a macro standpoint, what is an opportunity zone? And then what is your structure and why is your structure a superior model? Sure. So first of all, just a little bit of levity. Uh, the joke in the opportunity zone uh, business today and I'll clean this up a little bit, is it's like high school coupling. Uh, everybody's talking about it, but nobody's doing it. So of the 30 plus billion dollars uh, that's been announced uh, as participating in the Opportunity Zone industry, only about $3 billion has actually been deployed. And of that, uh, we're roughly 400 million of the 3 billion. Um, the reason uh, that it's so hard to deploy it is, is really the reasons uh, are many. First of all, this is capital gains dollars. It's not like raising a traditional private equity fund or a traditional real estate fund. You actually have to uh, invest the capital within 180 days of an investor having a, a gain. So there is a very complex tax structuring 
accounting structuring, uh, and real estate and private equ equity and fund management expertise that's necessary to do this. So we have a very deep team. Secondly, uh, there are 8,766 8, 8, zones, but there are fewer than 100 zones where there are uh, phenomenal uh, real estate opportunities uh, to be garnered. Uh, in May of 2018, when I first read this provision that was in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, my wife calls it the lost weekend. I spent the entire weekend trying to figure out why nobody was taking advantage of what I considered to be the biggest uh, tax break of our lifetimes. So the reason was largely that the regulations hadn't come out yet. And I, I took that as a challenge and uh, assembled a team of real estate experts, uh, lawyers, accountants, and others over a weekend to figure out what this legislation meant and how, before the regulations came out, could we devise a strategy to start taking advantage of that. Because we did that, uh, we got out ahead. We actually formed our fund before the first regulations came out. Uh, we were able to take those zones where, you know, this is, these zones are based, by the way, on 2010 census data. So if you look at Nashville, Tennessee, Portland, Oregon, downtown Houston, Texas, uh, the Rhino District in Denver, the D.C. area, uh, all of these areas have changed dramatically in the last decade. So what might have been uh, an area where it was 25% lower income 10 years ago is no longer 25% uh, uh, lower income. May, may not be all the way back to parity, but it's certainly a long way there. So those zones were going to go fast, and there were going to be many people who already had shovel-ready or close to shovel-ready projects in those zones. So when I think about our client base, our families, and our own capital, and I think about the capital gains that we're generating and the various things we're doing, this was tailor-made for us. So I asked Larry Levy to be my partner. Larry uh, is a developer's developer. Uh, he has developed you know, uh, many, many properties, and in particular, uh, about a dozen properties with Heinz. Heinz is one of the world's top developers, and Heinz had four projects that were basically shovel-ready that we were able to, to joint venture with Heinz in the QOZs. Uh, we did the same thing with Lennar, Washington Properties, and then my favorite one uh, in some ways uh, is in Portland, Oregon, the number one rated uh, qualified opportunity zone in the country. We partner with the Goodman family. The Goodmans are a phenomenal family. Uh, the patriarch of the family, uh, uh, now deceased, uh, believed in the parking business. He believed in the parking business in downtown Portland, which was not, you know, a great place to be at the time. But what he learned was every time he put up a parking lot, he was worried that somebody would put one up next to him because it happened to him once. So he began buying up the land around all, his, all of his parking lots. So today he has 26 uh, great pieces of property in the best qualified opportunity zone in the country. We're doing uh, a joint venture with them on their favorite one, which is uh, $110 million of equity, half from us and half from them uh, in downtown Portland. And we'll be doing uh, in the future other projects with them. So great opportunity, but what it requires is a deep team, real estate experts, tax experts, uh, fund management experts, and accounting experts, because there are a lot of rules and you have to get this right. Got it. Now, over one of the things that I speak about a lot is over the next 30 years, you know, you're going to find pretty much the biggest transfer of wealth in the history of this country, rough, you know, roughly 25, 30 trillion dollars. 
question to you is of the $30 trillion that's being transferred from the baby boomers to the next generation, how do you see the multifamily office market getting that, getting a good chunk of that? Sure. So baby boomers are about a, a number of things. Uh, one, they're about, they're about being involved and doing good things. Uh, two, they're about, they're about transparency and they're about fairness. So more than 75% of the wealth that's transferred over the last decade from one generation to the next has not kept with the same wealth advisor. And you know that makes sense when you consider that 65% of the market is still uh, in the wirehouses and banks, although that's changing pretty rapidly. So this next generation, they're not going to have any interest in that. What they're going to want is people who are completely aligned. They're going to want reporting on their phones. They're going to want the ability to make uh, uh, changes themselves on their phones. They're going to want a significant focus on philanthropy and ESG and, and all of the kinds of things where they're making a difference. And they're going to want significant involvement in an ecosystem because they're not going to just want to be passive investors. They're going to want to invest in families, investing with families and do the next uh, transaction. Um, I think that there are a number of entities that have shown that family office exchange has shown the value of peer learning experience. McNally Capital has shown that families want to invest uh, with other families. So we're, we're trying to marry uh, all of those trends and create a, a, a family office environment where it's a, a giant ecosystem where people can learn from each other, invest with each other, uh, where there is complete transparency, complete alignment. Uh, and you know, at Crescent, we have one other thing that no one else has, which is our clients can be investors in Crescent so that they are fully aligned with us. So you had mentioned a minute ago that family offices like to invest with other family offices. Now, in your old world, uh, you ran a large, successful private equity fund. Um, it seems to me, when I look at the world from a macro standpoint, that a lot of these, uh, the, the problem that family offices have with a lot of the private equity firms today is they've become too big. It's become almost an AUM game. So can you touch on why, what the advantages are for families to invest with other families versus investing in a traditional private equity fund? I think it's a number of things. I think it starts with the fee structure that family offices that have had access to private equity funds traditionally have paid a two and 20 or something that looks like a two and 20. And then they've had to pay someone else traditionally for access to those funds. If it's, if it's on a warehouse platform, they may be paying up to another 3% of an access fee. And they may be even paying a fund of funds type fee where they're paying an additional fee and carry. So there's a sales commission and then there can be an additional fee on top of that. I think that's what started the family office is thinking about uh, moving directly. Secondly, they're paying on committed capital, not invested capital, and that creates a very deep uh, a J curve, which can last several years because the money, they're paying fees, 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 and the money isn't invested yet uh, in earning them capital. So when they invest families, investing with families or they invest with us, they're only paying uh, uh, fees. There have to be some fees to support the operation, but they're only paying those fees and they're paying fewer fees. They're paying one fee and it's going to be less than even the two and 20. And they're paying it only on the capital that's invested, not the capital that is committed. Third, there's uh, an entire uh, uh, what I call um, control issue where in, in one sense, when you invest in a fund, 
you're subject to the control of that fund wanting to be selling those assets when they want to raise the next fund. In other words, uh, no matter how much people talk about IRRs, my experience with ins even institutional investors is they focus a lot on the percentage of fund that's been returned to them. So if you're going to raise the next fund, what do you do? You have to sell uh, some of the existing investments, and it may or may not be the most opportunity, uh, opportune time to sell those investments. And if you look at where wealth has been created in the United States, uh, a very substantial share of wealth has been created by long-term holding of, of companies, direct ownership in companies, long-term defined as 20 years or more. So rather than have the proverbial shot clock with the private equity fund, uh, when families invest with families, they can decide together uh, when they want to sell businesses and do it at the opportune time. And if there's disagreement among them, typically there are provisions that allow for somebody to get liquidity at fair value and, and others to stay in to the extent that they would prefer to do that. And that way, uh, minimizing uh, the friction from tax uh, and other costs uh, that, that, that go along with the constant sales of, from one private equity firm to another and one from, from private equity firms to strategic and the like. So it's initially fees, it's shot clock, it's alignment, it's also involvement. More and more it's involvement. So, you know, give you a great example. You know, we, we may have a client, I won't mention who it is, but who just was a uh, consumer product CEO. Uh, and he uh, is no longer that CEO. Uh, he's made enough money so that he doesn't need to work, but he wants to be involved in other consumer products deals we might, we might be involved in. We have the same thing uh, in the food business. We have the same thing in the healthcare services business. We have the same thing uh, in the general industrial business. So these are folks that want to be involved uh, going forward. So it's fees, it's structure, it's alignment, uh, and it's involvement, and it's transparency. I think that's driving the families investing with families move. Uh, that's a great response. And then, so basically, one of the major advantages, it's the patient capital is really critical for family. That's one of the big advantages they have over the traditional private equity firms. A absolutely, and you know, when you think about um, investing generally, and this is not true just for family offices, but it is something that family offices have recognized a long time ago. You are paid a premium for illiquidity. There's no doubt about that, and and it's a significant premium. So what the mistake that a lot of investors make, including some of our own investors, uh, is that when they think about things in a lifestyle bucket and in other buckets, whether it's a, you know whether it's three buckets, lifestyle, growth, and aspirational, or whether it's just lifestyle and purpose, however they define it, most people over allocate to the lifestyle bucket. In other words, they think they need more liquidity than they really need uh, to service their needs. What large family offices have realized for a very long time is that you want to just have, you know, a little bit of cushion in that lifestyle bucket and the rest of it you want in, in places where they may be illiquid, but you get paid for that illiquidity and you get much better returns that way. And so families investing in families is an outgrowth of that. They recognize that for that part of their uh, uh, offering, for their, that part of their own capital that can be illiquid, illiquid they can make much better returns by doing that uh, and doing it in a way where they can control the long-term ownership of those returns. Got it. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier, um, you had spoken about basically how more and more families are getting more concerned about philanthropy. 
I couldn't imagine talking to, and I'm not picking on Merrill Lynch, but to a Merrill Lynch broker 20 years ago and having them discuss, have an engaged conversation about philanthropy. What have you guys done um, to beef up your team and to engage the family offices that you're working with in philanthropy? And how important of, a, of an aspect of that is that for most of the families you work with? It's huge. Uh, it starts with family governance. In other words, what does the family stand for? Most families don't take the time to step back and say, what do I want this to stand for? Not what do I want my investments to be, not what do I, how do I want my kids to grow up, but what do I want this family long-term to stand for? And out of that, out of that process, which is run by a, a very talented uh, woman named Jill Shipley, by the way, I would recommend highly uh, to all of the people living, uh, listening to this podcast, a book called More Than Money that our CEO of our asset management business, Michael Cole, wrote. And it takes you through all of these issues of how you define family's purpose and then how you create a, a philanthropic plan or a plan to execute upon that purpose. And then, as I mentioned, so, I did read, I did read yeah. that and it, it is a fantastic book. Right. And thank you, Ron. And, and, that really outlines how we do it, but uh, Jill Shipley, Whitney Webb, uh, our family governance and family education folks, that's where it starts. And then we have folks that talk about, or, or lots of people on our staff, who can help clients to think through, okay, now I, I know what my mission is, I know what my purpose is, how do I implement that? What does that look like? What things do I invest in? What staff do I need? What does it look like? And you know, there are a number of things that we can suggest uh, in that area, but it's very specific to the purpose and to the education of the family and what they want to achieve. Got it. So you, we talked earlier, you know, you had the wirehouses, they were the start, then they morphed into, some of them morphed into RAAs, which you thought was a better model. And then that morphed into an even better model, which is multifamily offices. Where do you see from a macro standpoint, the multifamily office industry growing in the next 10, 10 five to 10 years? Well, the fastest growing segment, of course, is the is the 30 million and up segment, and 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 the fastest growing segment within that is the you know 100 to 500 million, let's call it segment. So that is going to be uh, the fastest growing and the and the I think the best suited for multifamily offices. So you're going to see significant growth and significant tailwinds. I think that the 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 the, the what will likely happen is there will emerge half a dozen to a dozen brands in the family office space, which really don't, or multifamily office space, which really don't exist today. Today, there are, you know, people talk about Iconic on the West Coast. They might talk about Rockefeller because of the name, although I don't really consider Rockefeller to be a multifamily office. Um, they may talk about Crescent if they know us, uh, and they might talk about a couple of the other large ones that are in New York. But generally, there aren't any true national brands that really stand for a specific style of multifamily office. And I think there will be several that emerge over the next decade. And, you know, you have the custodians, Fidelity, Schwab, and Pershing really driving this in the sense that they're driving the move to independence. They're pointing out uh, the differences between uh, wirehouses and banks and independent uh, investment advisors. And since they're the custodians for the assets, they have a a very significant incentive to keep driving that. So I think you'll see more and more education on what it means to be part of a family office, a multifamily office, and how that can benefit uh, clients. 
and you'll, you'll see the emergence of sure. some brands. Terrific. Well, look, I could speak to you for hours about this and you've been terrific. Um, if people wanted to get hold of you, uh, what's you have a website? What, what's the best way for people to learn or get a hold of what of Crescent or you? Probably the easiest thing is shoot me an email, a Stein at Crescent, C R E S S E T capital.com. And it's a S T E I N. Uh, that's probably the best way. Terrific. Avi, this has been great. Um, very insightful. Always like talking to you. Always get educated when I speak with you. Uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. You've been terrific. Likewise, Ron. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.